Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we interview uh, interesting people and ask them about the books and journal articles that they've written. Joining us today is Professor Mark Helgerson from Miyagi Gakuin Women's University, and perhaps more importantly, the author of over 180 books and articles on the topic of language learning. Nice to meet you, Mark. It's great to meet you, and great to be on your show. All right. I would uh, like to get started by asking you um, about your book, which is called English Teaching and the Science of Happiness, Positive Psychology Communication Activities for Language Learning. And my overall uh, question is, what came to you first? Um, was it the concept of happiness and language learning, or had you been collecting these materials and activities for quite a while? Um, both. Okay, the, the, actually what happened was this. Um, about 15 years ago, um, Time Magazine, actually, um, had, a, had a special issue on um, positive psychology which was called The Science of Happiness. And I had never heard of positive psychology um, by, at that time. It was, it was relatively new, and this was back in 2005, I think. Um, and in that um, issue, Sonia Lubomirsky, who's at, at um, University of California, Riverside, had a, um, a short article about eight, um, eight things that, that – happy mentally healthy people do and they they included stuff like um counting your blessings remembering good things in your life doing kind things saying thank you taking time for friends and family um forgive um anyway things like that and what occurred to me is out of the eight six are already really standard in language teaching i mean mm -hmm. things like okay remember good things remember that's past tense Right, that's grand, and, and noticing things as they happen, which which we now call mindfulness, is the present. And things like forgiving and thanking are language routines, language functions, and and some of them taking taking time for your friends and family, taking care of your health. Those are really common topics. Mm. Yet, yet so often textbooks are are the same old, you know. Uh, Who's your favorite movie star? What's your favorite sport? Kind of stuff, mm. and not, nothing wrong with that kind of thing. But this gave us a chance; gives us a chance to go so much deeper. And and so as soon as I read read this thing, I you know this is interesting. So I started reading a few more books about positive psychology, and then just started playing with activities in the classroom just to see where students would go with it, and. Um, just the feedback from students was great. Mm. And um, so that's what kind of got me started. Okay. And to, uh, and to ask you um, from a, one of the, from the first activities in your book, um, what would you say is your set point when it comes to happiness? Uh, I mean, are, are, you, are you, a, are you a happy guy? Not overly. Not, I'm, I'm <laughs> somewhere, I'm somewhere in the middle. Um, shall I explain for your your listeners a set point? This is based on on uh, Ed Diener at University of Illinois, uh, Illinois Champaign Urbana. Um, he, he says about fifty percent of our happiness is a set point, which means we you go up and you go down. Um, but of course, you know, good things happen. We all 
feel better. Bad things happen when it, it goes down. But about 50% are just wherever you, you it's a predisposition. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, um, but where, where it gets interesting, and this is, I think, the important part, is um, only 10% of our happiness is circumstances. And and what's funny about that is circumstances are where most of us spend all of our energy. That's mm-hmm. what we're, you know, trying to get a better job, trying to get ahead. We publish a lot of papers to get promoted, all of this <laughs> kind of stuff, right? It's only 10%. 40%, the other 40% is our decisions, what we what we choose to do. And like, okay, that means I should pay attention to that. Okay. Now, of course, I mean, um, recently, Lubomirsky, who I mentioned earlier, um, published another paper saying, now, like, those are averages. It's not going to be, you know, 40% on this day. Mm-hmm. But overall, I mean, the, the whole point is, overall, we have this huge amount of control over how happy we are. Mm-hmm. And it, you, you, you manifest that in the classroom in a very interesting way. I mean, you suggest uh, giving students a cookie or having them to imagine eating a cookie and uh, eating 50% of it and then 10% of it and then 40% of it and savoring it in different ways. Yeah, yeah. I, um, well, a couple of things. You know, nobody's going to object to a cookie. But, <laughs> but, but I, I, I want to make it like, Okay, I want to make it clear to the students that this is science, right? But but um, so many, and it, it's it's really a shame because every kid in the world starts out fascinated by science, right? Mm. When we're little kids and insects and dinosaurs and the whole thing, and unfortunately, the the school system tests it out of most of them. So a whole lot of students just have an aversion to science. So by having them break the cookie in half. Eat it slowly, mm-hmm. you know, like, like really appreciate, savor it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, okay, that's your set point. There's not really anything you can do about it. And we use, and we use like real world examples, like, like, um, you know, some, you know, some people who like every day are, are um, oh, it's a beautiful day. Yeah. And then, then we have a cloudy day and ah, I feel how cool and refreshing it is. Mm-hmm. And other other people who are just the opposite, like, oh, it's really sunny. It's going to be hot. And then a cloudy day, it looks like it's going to rain. You know, it's like, yeah, we all have a set point. And, and if that's, if it is set, and I make it clear, this has nothing to do with tennis, right? It's, it's, it's just, <laughs> it, it's just a point where you are. You can't control it. So why worry about it? Right. But then when they get the circumstances, which is where everybody thinks that's where I have to put all my energy. Well, you know, good luck, and I hope I hope everybody. I mean, right now we're we're looking at, at lockdown in you know forthcoming lockdown in in Japan because of the coronavirus, right. and um, that's lousy circumstances. But you know, that's what it is, and and we can't, you know, we we hope everybody's circumstance improves, but we can't really do much about it. But that other forty percent, wow, that's huge. And that that means we we all have a huge amount of control over over our happiness. Right. And I think this leads into um, the second point that I wanted to bring up, which was uh, your activities 
uh, often include the use of personal anecdotes by the students. And personal anecdotes are things that I've always found very useful, particularly in speaking activities with my students. Um, I just wondered about your uh, experiences with those and w why you picked those for the for some of the activities. Our brains are designed to process stories. Right. And what's happening when we're telling personal anecdotes is we're, we're telling stories. And um, personalization, I really want the students to connect this. Uh, I mean, if they want to do a story that's just fantasy and they make up, that's, that's totally cool. Mm -hmm. But I find most people like sharing their, their experiences, their dreams, their, even their disappointments. If mm -hmm. you, um, I mean, this is something I, I sometimes have to point out because I should emphasize positive psychology is not the power of positive thinking. Okay, that that is power of positive thinking is not a science. It's a philosophy and a kind of dodgy one at best. It's not about denial. So positive psychology, you know, recognize we all um we all have negative experiences sometimes. Right. Uh, Talbin Shahar, who who's one of the, the big names in positive psychology, has a great um line. He says it's something like the only, the only kinds of people who don't have um, negative experience are, uh, are uh, psychopaths and dead people. <laughs> Take your pick. Mm. You know, like we're going to have negative experiences, but very often, if that comes up in a in a story that students are telling, it's a negative experience that they overcame, that right. they got. And so it's it's actually a positive in in one sense in that they found a way to get past it. It also brings uh, up the uh it emphasizes the circumstances because they can go back and remember that this was a negative moment for them, but it was temporary and through making decisions and, and making positive choices, maybe they got themselves through it. And so they will recognize that this is this is part of their um it, this is only the ten percent, but by optimizing the 40%, they can actually uh, learn something and improve. Absolutely. And learning that they actually have control. Right. They, they have agency in this, in, uh, in it there. And I feel often, um, and I've been teaching in Japan for a long time, so that, that very much colors my, uh, my point of view. But um, most Japanese students don't, in, in university, um, and especially before university, often don't have a lot of choices. Choices are made for them. Mm -hmm. And so they don't really, really think about how much agency they can have if they choose to. Indeed. Uh, the I always uh, address anecdotes in front of my students uh, from a practical point of view before we go on and demonstrate it to them. And I tell them there's, there's three things that are that anecdotes work really well for. Uh, the first thing is, well, you said they could make up fantasies, but usually they're true. So often coming up with the contents of things to say in a second language is the most difficult thing. But if it happened to you, then you know when it happened and why it happened and who was there. Um, and the second point is exactly as you say, it forms a connection between them and the other person because when they're talking about that story, the other person is remembering a time when they... Um, 
when they had things happen to them that were very similar. Uh, the third reason, just for pure practicality, if they're giving a presentation, then anecdotes take some some time. So they might have to take a whole minute to tell this story, but it's going to give them plenty of content to talk about. Yeah, and plenty of content to practice. I mean, just the very practical thing that we're all, we're language teachers. Exactly. And, and, and something I emphasize to my students is like all of these things, number one, as I said, it's, it's science. Yes. And and um, and I make it clear, but I'm saying, but everything for me has got to have a clear language point. Um, it might be grammar, it might be uh, vocabulary, it might just be talk about X topic, um, or it might just be fluency work. But there's always got got to be a clear language point so that it has, if nothing else, well, a it's practical, but it has face validity. Like, exactly. Why is my why is my English teacher asking me to talk about all this stuff? Well, okay. It's it's an engaging thing. They're engaging topics. Well, there is that emotional component to it where you want the, the students to get past the fact that it's a language learning activity and that they're actually accessing the emotional, perhaps more fluent side of their thinking and then their speaking. Right, right. And I think that's especially important when we're teaching required classes. Because, I mean, like when, okay, if, if I was teaching English majors, which I don't, um, you know, they're going to, I expect them to want to do well in English. Um, but when I'm teaching non-majors, I got to make sure that I connect whatever we're doing in the classroom to their real lives. This came up with the in the interview that I did with Chris Ramonda, where he talked about teaching English major students or students who are going to study abroad and really enjoying those because the motivation level, the baseline motivation level was just that much higher. Um, and we talked a little bit about uh, that it's oftentimes not the student's fault that they're lacking in motivation. They've just been told that they have to go into this classroom. So... Uh, we as teachers have to recognize that and prepare our lessons and our attitude towards them in in that manner. Absolutely, and 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 you know, I mean, I like to start with what's their major, and how can I connect that major to um, to English? Hmm. And to give you what I, th I think is a brilliant example, one of my grad students um, in Nagoya teaches at a science university. And, and she said she's got this weird situation that where um, the students know they need English because um, they're going to be scientists, they got to do papers, etc., mm -hmm. but not particularly interested in it. So she um, has a website with all these weird science stories <laughs> and as the students. And, and the, my favorite one, I saw a presentation that she did, which was brilliant. There was this story about... Um, gay penguins who had essentially kidnapped some other baby penguins because they couldn't have their own. And like, it's just, this is weird stuff, but it was delightful. And her students were like, wow, this is fascinating. I'm learning this surprising stuff in English. And then they were turning around doing storytelling, etc. cetera. And um, yeah, there are, I mean, there, we can reach students this way. Yeah. Uh, trying to, uh, 
make it relevant to them, I think, is is really important. I, I teach students from a wide variety, from engineering to medical to sound design students, and so a one-size-fits-all lesson is not going to work in that situation. You have to be flexible and try and think up inventive ways to connect to them. Absolutely. Um, I'd like to move on and talk about the, uh, the you include a Chinese proverb that goes through an hour, a day, a month, a year, and a lifetime, and how to be happy for uh, those five lengths of time. Um, I, I wonder how the, because I wonder how the Chinese came up with it, because it was, if you want to be happy for an hour, take a nap. If you want to be happy for a day, go fishing. If you want to be happy for a month, get married. Seems a little bit negative there. Uh, if you want to be happy for a year, inherit a lot of money. And if you want to be happy for a lifetime, help someone else. And right. I, I wanted to um, ask you whether you were uh, aware of um, the research that's been done into, uh, um, what's it uh, called? It was, it was done by uh, Michael Norton. Um, and uh, pro-social activities. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. Oh, in, in in his experiment, they they gave money, various amounts of money, usually quite small, and separated the, them into two groups. One group of people were told to use the money on themselves, and one group of people told to use the money uh, for somebody else. And then they called them back and asked them how happy they were. And the people who used it on themselves didn't get less happy, but the people who used it on other people were significantly happier and right. uh so this uh the, the proverb lines up with actual scientific research it does it does um two thoughts on that one just just a, a great anecdote um I, i've sometimes used this the, the proverb i have this hanging on the wall of my classroom <laughs> and um i've used it in presentations and and uh and i stop you know and like you want to be happy for an hour what do you do and, you know, the audience gives answers. And, and uh, uh, we got to the one, you want to be happy for a month, get married. Um, you want to be happy for a year. Okay. I was doing this in, in Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. And this very uh, older, very um, uh, erai is coming up with the, the Japanese. I'm not coming up with the English. Very, very um, wise. Professor yeah. P professorial. Yeah, uh, looks up and says, uh, "Get married again." Like, <laughs> okay, but anyway. Um, but the thing about the, the doing stuff for, for somebody else. Um, one uh, study by um, by Martin Seligman at, at uh, Pennsylvania and uh, Chris Peterson, who was at uh, Michigan, and a couple other people did did a. Uh, the whole thing was published as empirical studies of, of um, uh, positive psychology interventions, I think was the title. But anyway, they, they did studies of four standard positive psychology um, activities and then had one um, placebo. And what was interesting is the strongest, all of the positive psychology activities had positive results. But one of the strongest was writing a gratitude letter mm. where you think of someone who you want to thank and you write them a letter explaining what they did and how it impacted you. And ideally you, um, you read it to them in person if you can. And, um, what they found is, is that they, okay. The, the placebo was what are your earliest childhood memories? 
Mm-hmm. Okay. And what was interesting is, is at the beginning of the of the study, because um, they followed it up, like, okay, do these activities. And um, they followed up a week later and a couple weeks and a and couple months and, and all the way up to six months, right? Initially, the placebo was, was the, the people in the placebo group were at higher levels of, of um, happiness, basically satisfaction and, and lack of, of depressive sim- symptoms. But the, those who um, wrote the, the, um, the gratitude letter had six months of positive results, feeling, feeling better later. And that's like, wow, if I can get six months of happiness out of, you know, doing a half hour activity, that's wonderful. Well, that kind of uh, gives the light to, uh, to to being happy for a month because a tradition at the end of most Japanese weddings is that the bride and groom read letters of thanks to their parents as they embark on their new life together. So right. you, you'd think that that would give them six months of happily married life, wouldn't it? <laughs> I think. But, well, that's, maybe that's why it's a Chinese proverb, not a Japanese one. I don't know. <laughs> we, maybe we should all adopt this... Uh, this um, this tradition. When I was reading through uh, the section on um, random acts of kindness, I was uh, reminded of the movie Groundhog Day. I don't know. Have you seen it? I haven't actually. I, I I know a little bit about what it's about. I've seen clips, but it it reminded me of of that work because uh, the idea of the movie is that he has to live the same day over and over and over again. And once he gets right. past the shock of it, he starts off by doing lots of very selfish things. Then, when that doesn't make him happy, he then tries to end his life in a various number of ways. And it's only when he gets to to understand that he can break the cycle if he can make a woman fall in love with him. But in order to do it, she's so kind and he's so selfish. He's going to have to, you know, do all these random acts of kindness for strangers. And it's only then when he does this for many, many cycles, that he breaks the cycle and becomes a happier, uh, a happier man. Ah, nice. I didn't, I didn't realize that. I, I knew, I knew it was about the guy who was living the same day over and over, but I didn't realize that was the uh, the plot line was learning how to break it by being kind. So I, I wondered, um, what kind of acts of kindness have you um, motivated in your students over the years? Oh, they, students are creative. Lots of things. Um, but uh, I've, I've tried lots of different things. The way I usually introduce it in class is is um, I bring in chocolate um, and give everybody two pieces of chocolate. And sometimes if I want to, depending on what we do with it, we, we do a, a mindfulness activity where they eat the uh, eat one piece of chocolate with, with mindfulness. Um, and I can explain that in a minute if you want. But, but, um, and I said, the other piece of chocolate is for somebody else who is not a member of this class and, you know, ideally not even a, a student in your department, somebody you don't know. And we brainstorm who you might give it to. And if it's somebody at school, it might be, um, like, how about the cleaning people who, who, uh, Whoever thanks the cleaning people, right? Or the, the, um, 
the department um, assistants or secretaries or, or whatever, or the, the guards at the front gate or, or the bus driver. And, um, um, and I encourage him, one good way, one way I like to do it personally is you just go up to somebody and I say in Japanese, uh, what time is it? And whenever they say, the answer, you say, ah, oyatsu chikan desu. It's, it's uh, snack time. And I hand them a piece of chocolate <laughs> and disappear. And so I call it choco ninja, <laughs> um, which is a way to do it because it, like, it's, it's weird to walk up somebody you don't know and give them chocolate. But if you give it a little story, it, it um, you know, it works. And then I, I'll often ask the students, okay, homework for next week. Do something unexpected for somebody and you know, write me a paragraph. And they've done little things like like um, giving up their seats on the bus for an old person or somebody with a baby, which like culturally we're supposed to do that anyway, but, but they notice doing it, helping, helping a brother or sister with some problem. Um, you know, offering uh, help an old person on the, on the street and just um, – all kinds of little things um, that's just the, the, the idea is these are not supposed to be huge, you know, right. Ch changing your, your whole world, but just like little things that we can do um, that, that are nice. I mean, you, you include, you include a list on page 100 and there are some things like, like you say, they're not big things, but they, they would, if they were done for me, they would change my day. Like small things, like uh, pick up a bicycle that fell over. Um, maybe no one will ever see you do it, and you'll never get the thanks from the person. But if I knew that my bike had fallen over and was perhaps going to get damaged, and I, someone I didn't know helped me, then um, I would certainly be very grateful for that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think just pointing, and we, we just brainstorm things that we can do. One thing I mentioned the cleaning people. I, I think Curtis Kelly is, is has been or is going to be on this podcast, right? Yes, that's right. Um, uh, one thing I know he does at the end of semester, he has his students write thank you notes to the cleaning people on the whiteboards. Oh, that's which so is nice. Kind of, which is kind of nice because I mean, the, well, then the cleaning people have to clean it off. But but <laughs> I mean, the cleaning people are used to cleaning off the whiteboards anyway. At least have something nice, and I just. Little things like that to help create the culture that, that you know, hey, we're all taking care of each other. Right, right. The, the next section in the book um, is perhaps a little more difficult than uh, being kind to people, and it talks about forgiveness. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little about why you included that? Because uh, it's hard. Yes. And... Now, I, I, I would agree. Of those, you know, I mentioned Lubomirsky's first, you know, mm -hmm. eight things, and forgiveness is one of them. Right. And, um, and learning to forgive other people is hard enough. Learning to forgive ourselves mm. is perhaps even harder. And I stress to my students, um, like, like, when you don't forgive, okay, whoever, oh, okay, um, Random acts of kindness. It's easy to talk about doing nice things, right? But you know, forgiveness. Tell us about somebody who was a jerk. You can't really do that, right? <laughs> but, 
But usually the person who did the wrong thing doesn't know or doesn't care. Because like, let's assume they're a jerk. They're just, they're not aware of it. But so they are not carrying the weight, but we still are. Mm. That I think is the key to learning to forgive. Now, what I, the specific of what I do, my favorite way to do this in a classroom is through a listening activity where I have the students pick up something that um, is easy to hold. Um, I say often like a cell phone or a water bottle. because not so, You don't want something as heavy as a backpack or whatever. And uh, I have them stand up. They uh, hold their, their arms straight out. And um, then I, I walk them through it, and I, through the whole idea, you know, like somebody did something wrong. Um, they don't know, you know, forgiveness does not mean they can do it again. Forgiveness is important for stuff that, that should not be done again. But um, you're carrying the weight. And, and it's kind of a long, I, I talk for like a minute and a half, two minutes. And anything, even your, your, your mobile phone, is getting really, really heavy. Hmm, yeah. And they get the idea. And it's a metaphor. Hmm. And like metaphors are good for explaining stuff that we can't explain well directly. And I do that as a, as a way of getting them to think about it. And then I, I emphasize um, forgiving yourself. And here's, um, if Curtis was, was on, he was probably talking about brain science, right? I believe so, yes. Yeah. And uh, here's a little fact from brain science that I always tell my students. I say, you know, how many of you ever do th things that are stupid? And we all do, mm. right? But here's the part that's interesting. The teenage brain, the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that, that handles uh, um, emotion, especially negative emotion, the amygdala handles the, the fight, flight, or freeze response, right? Mm -hmm. That is fully developed by age 15. Mm. means as a teenager, you can get as angry as you will ever get in your life. But the prefrontal cortex, which handles decision-making is not fully developed until your mid-20s, right. which means we will do stupid stuff because that's just brain development. And so I tell my students, if they do something stupid, okay, recognize it was stupid, try not to do it again, but don't knock yourself out because, okay, that's just part of be becoming mature. Learn to forgive yourself. When you make a mistake, you know, it's not the end of the world. You can do it differently next time. And so I bring up forgiving oneself, which I think is, is I think it's important for everybody, but I think especially for teenagers who seem to, you know, it's that, it's that part of growing up, the, the uh, maturation kind of thing. Well, it's an interesting point that you raise about the, that person might not ever know that you have that you have been harmed by what they did. And I would use the example of, so you're on the highway and a car comes up from behind you and, and cuts you off. That person didn't do that because they know you and because they wanted to anger you or put you in a dangerous situation. You were just some other person in the world. But the anger that you feel is real. Oh, for if, sure. If you, can, if you can find that person at that moment, you might say something to them. But... Uh, you can't 
And as you say, you're the one that's carrying the anger around. You have right. to be able to forgive the person um, who didn't know what they were doing, and then you can let go of it. It's interesting when you say forgive yourself, because then you are both parties in the interaction. You are the one who is being forgiven, which you're, it's an acceptance that you were the one who did the bad thing as well. So you're learning something on one side, and you're also getting the positive effect of being forgiven as well. Right, right. And I think that's that's an important part. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. you mentioned allegory, a metaphor, and it's it's why so many stories, famous stories throughout history, are allegorical, because mm -hmm. explaining emotions and explaining uh, how we should be reacting in certain situations is really difficult to teach. It it has to be shown. Exactly, exactly. It has to be modeled, right? And and that's what that's what metaphor and allegory does. Yeah, I'd like to bring up now, because you, you mentioned it before, um, but being present and noticing. Uh, one of right. your activities is very close to uh, um, uh, a situation that came up in a TED Talk by someone called Julian Treasure, where he mentioned, he talks about the science of listening and how important mm -hmm. it is to understand all the different sounds around you. So you might just be mm -hmm. thinking that there's the person who's speaking to you or the TV show that you have, but there's a pot of coffee that's uh, boiling in the background. You've got the sound of birds chirping outside, maybe the wind, maybe the rain, um, that he calls uh, uh, the hidden orchestra. And you talk a little about that um, when you talk about noticing. Yeah, I, I do a thing called, mm. Mm. I do a thing called sounds around us. Um, we're asking everybody to just sit comfortably and close their eyes and just listen very carefully for about one minute mm -hmm. and make a mental note of everything they hear. Because even you're right, we think the room is silent. It almost never is. And when you slow down and actually listen, I mean, did you ever notice that, that you can actually hear the clock on the wall ticking? Mm. And you mentioned things, birds outside or, or uh, cars on the street. Um, sometimes people breathing and just as a way of, of noticing, I, I think a lot of people, m mindfulness is kind of, it's having a boom, right? We, um, um, there's a lot of, you see it on the internet a lot. You see a lot of books and it's, um, simpler than most people think it is just noticing what's actually noticing and accepting what's actually going on right now. And um, what's his name? Something Allen. Um, Dan Allen. Allen, who's a, a, a TV commentator who's, who's become a very strong proponent of, of uh, meditation, points out, you know, people think, oh, I'm not doing it right when they start meditating. I'm not doing it right because I keep on thinking of all kinds of stuff. Well, yeah, but you're actually doing that all the time. It's just now you're noticing it. And that that is actually successful mindfulness. So just noticing what's really going on. I often, I, I mentioned giving them two pieces of chocolate and eating one with mindfulness. And what that involves is, the, the idea is most of us don't notice what we eat. We're just like, look, 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 right? Unless it's some special occasion, you're a fancy restaurant, a new restaurant or something. But um, I'll, I'll, 
walk them through eating a piece of chocolate and will take like more than one minute to eat it. Like, the, you know, open it up and, and bring it to your nose and smell it. Yeah, and, and take that in and notice the smell and then break off a little piece and put it on your tongue. Don't don't start chewing it yet. But um, it's on your tongue and notice how your mouth is now wet with saliva because your brain knows something really good is coming. And you can kind of feel the whole flavor through. And I, I walk them through eating a piece of chocolate really, really slowly as a, um, as a way of experiencing mindfulness. Well, it is, it's also a kind of, again, you're, you're doing the, uh, or the, the teacher would be doing the, the kind of allegorical action because it's impossible to physically witness the actions of our mind. But we can physically experience taste or right. uh, hearing, uh, yeah. and then if you transpose that onto the mental processes, uh, it's a way of, as you say, getting uh, the people to be more mindful. Actually, um, I kind of stole that idea from from John Kabat-Zinn, uh, who I think he's retired now, but he he was, he was at the. Um, uh, Massachusetts, okay, in, it's, it's the equivalent of Massachusetts University Hospital, whatever, but, but he did their, their uh, mindfulness center where they were do, doing meditation techniques um, to help people who were in chronic pain and couldn't be helped by traditional medicine. And he said he starts with a raisin meditation, eating a raisin with mindfulness because he, he started the center back in the 90s i want to say so this was before i mean that this is back when meditation was still a hippie thing right and he wanted he wanted to make it not weird mm. so he started eating meditation to help his his clients realize that they usually don't eat with mindfulness right and so i i i find um well, like almost everybody likes chocolate i will often introduce Instead of a raisin meditation, I do it with dried blueberries because a lot of my students don't like raisins, but everybody likes blueberries. <laughs> and um, you know, it does the same thing. And like, oh, I never realized that I, you know, that I don't pay attention when I'm eating. And and like, yeah, it can really be powerful to learn to slow down and do one thing at a time. So you're eating, and you're only eating. The blueberry, or the piece of chocolate, or the whatever it is we're doing. Well, it's it's interesting to to say that because certain things we compartmentalize and we don't we don't think about them for a reason. Like if if we were thinking about every single action that we were doing whilst driving a car, we would crash every single time because it would just it would overload our ability to process the information. But Absolutely. we often then put that kind of lack of mindfulness. Uh, into activities that we we should be appreciating more, like eating or just spending some time with family or friends, and uh, it's uh, I think it's a good activity to have. Uh, um, as you say, this is not just a, a, an approach to learning a language, but it is approach to a probably a happier life. Oh, absolutely! Just just learning to slow down and appreciate stuff um, is 
you know, one of the one of the things I talk about a lot in the book is is savoring, mm. which is basically that it's just learning to slow down. Um, let let me give a. Uh, are, are most of your listeners in Japan? Do you know, or are they all over? Um, Jonathan has the exact numbers, but he was telling me that we have some in Europe and North America as well. But I would say predominantly Japan. Yeah. Okay. So let me give you an example that's based in Japan, but it, but it, this works anywhere. Okay. Uh, in Japan, we have the concept of wabi-sabi, which is, is beautiful roughness, mm. which is cool in, in, in Japanese art and Japanese architecture and all this kind of thing. I encourage my, and, and like, we all think, and especially those of us who are foreigners who come to Japan, initially we, we love Japanese design, the simplicity, right? Mm. But so many of us never see it anymore. But mm. what happens in reality, we're walking past it every day. We just don't focus on it. So I'll encourage my students, um, okay, today on your way home, how many examples of wabi-sabi can you notice? And so mm. if you have listeners in, in Europe or North America, where how many examples of, of – um, natural beauty or mm. how many examples of um your culture or cultures showing through just taking you know just bringing it to consciousness so that we can appreciate it and it's uh it's a good way for students to connect i mean the, the whole concept of wabi-sabi um and seeing it in you know both nature and things that are produced uh in the culture um is is a way of them reconnecting uh with culture i think if uh if students were more mindful of the positive parts of japanese culture then i think they would probably feel more confident about communicating them uh in a foreign language and in being encouraged to make that kind of international intercultural connection i agree and and i encourage them okay when you're looking at how would you explain it to a foreigner who's just totally new to Japan, who, do, who doesn't, you know, you're looking at that and like, uh, what's that big stone lantern doing in the garden? And you don't, it, it doesn't even light. What's for a lantern? And you're like, just how would you explain things Japanese? Which again, I think goes back to the personalization that we talked about. Is is if you can explain your own life, it you're more connected with it, and you can connect with the other person. A friend of mine did a study abroad program and encouraged students uh, to make scrapbooks before they went and to cut out pictures of their local area and the sports they liked and the their families and then practice how to explain each one of those things. So they had some built-in contents for their homestay parents uh, nice. on the first day or, or the first weekend that they could talk about. That's a great idea. Yeah, I, I thought it was um, absolutely fantastic. And some of the examples, because students, once they get into uh, a project and they really fo get focused on it, um, then they produce some really interesting stuff. Like you said, the best ideas of um, random acts of kindness came from your students. Right, right. And it also, when, when they're doing something, um, and that's not the only way, but like, for example, explaining something related to their own lives or relating to Japanese culture, they're the knower. Mm. they're the expert and and i think um just putting them in that position of of uh explaining something that perhaps literally the teacher doesn't 
understand, especially if, if the teacher is a foreigner, um, that's a really powerful, um, powerful way to, to um, give them agency, to make them, to, to make them more powerful. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, the, the final section that I'd like to go over, because in our pre-interview uh, communication, we talked a lot about um, writing and publishing and writing styles and being, a, being an effective writer in an academic uh, sense. And I thought this would be a really interesting topic for you to talk about um, for our listeners, some of whom are uh, perhaps struggling to uh, get their writing style together or they're under pressure to publish, as you say, uh, you know, trying to get tenure. So um, could you tell me a little about the story that you, you mentioned in the email about your writing style and the feedback from the publisher? Yeah, I, um, I publish quite a bit. And I have a relatively, um, I, I, my natural writing style is, is more informal. I, I, I try to write like I'm having a conversation. Well, obviously, you can't do an academic article like that. But um, I, and this is my bias, I consider much academic writing to just be poor writing. To just like, like the first thing, when you, when you take a, a college writing class what's the first thing they tell you think about your audience mm. but in so much academic writing um it sounds like you're writing to impress colleagues mm. rather than communicate whatever it is you've been researching or whatever you're trying to to write about anyway and so i i think if it's that's not academic publishing that's academic printing it's not you know mm -hmm. real publishing is is writing to be read Anyway, a um, couple of years, few, few years ago, I was in, invited to um, submit a chapter to a book on, on this topic um, to a rather prestigious, uh, I, I don't want to mention names, but you know the kind of publishers that charge like a hundred bucks for every book? Mm -hmm. That's another thing, mm -hmm. but that, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, and I wondered, wow, it, it, is my writing style style going to be acceptable? Mm. To, so I and, and to make it harder, they said, "Oh yeah, and can you write it in British English?" <laughs> <laughs> right. And so I well, I changed the spell checker, grammar checker on my computer, and um, you started drinking more tea. Well, I just relied on on uh, the grammar checker basically, <laughs> but, but yeah, you know, and I I mean I try and I said, you, "Look, you guys know that." Anything that stands out, just let me know. But anyway, I wrote it up and getting ready to send it off, totally cognizant that, that you know, they may just say, I'm sorry, this isn't, this doesn't fit our style. Well, what happened, because I, I was trying to actually communicate these ideas, and in many ways, I was trying to motivate teachers to try these things. Mm. So I sent off the article and month or so later, I get an email back from the editor saying, can we send this to some of the other authors? Because we're trying to get people to write to be read. And too many people were in this, this default right to make myself sound smart. Mm. And like, um, if, you know, if, if what you have to say has content, mm. that's what you need. You, you shouldn't, um, 
you should write to be read. <laughs> and there's, there's also, I think, that the problem, um, there's the old joke in, in academic uh, publishing that the average article is read by seven people, and that includes your mother, right? And like, where so much stuff is seems to be written just to get published right and and um and getting published is important but like for example and this is just my personal choice um i've been at my university more than 30 years and i think i've only published in the uh, campus keel the mm -hmm. the campus journal three times mm -hmm. and that was when i when i first started just because I know know that those articles don't really get read the way stuff gets read when you publish in something that, that more people are going to see. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, writing with that intention, um, I think, I think makes a difference. But, but then again, if, if somebody's brand new at this, if, if the Keo is your only choice, yes, do that. You've, it is, this sounds cynical, but I don't mean it like that. That is the game. That's the ground rules. We got to get published. But I would encourage people to try to get published in places that, that people are going to read and, and try to write about things that you um, have some sense of passion about. Um, and yeah, I think you can get passionate about grammar. I think you can get passionate about statistical research. You know, it, it's just whatever you find important and whatever's making a difference for your students. When I was uh, uh, interviewing Chris Ramonda, uh, he was saying the, the big piece of advice for anyone who's going to do any uh, academic research is you have to care about what the answer is. You have to want to know, because if you don't want to know, then how are you going to encourage anyone else to care and read the work that you've done? And, and how are you going to do all the hard work? Right. Because research is hard work. And uh, so, you know, find what you're passionate about or, or can get passionate about. And yeah, I, I like I like that advice. You know, you got to care about the results. You're, you're, we are all trying to engage in finding out some aspect of reality. I mean, that's the science in, in all of what we're doing. Even if we're in the humanities, mm. we're involved in a kind of science. Absolutely right. Um, you, you mentioned in the section in the, in the book um, on happiness 2.0, um, and those two things line up exactly with what you're saying there. So uh, having pride in your work, not being prideful as a negative personality trait, but you know, looking at a job well done and feeling that, uh, that you, you did it in the right way. And then finally, the, the, the thing that you talk about is achievement. And so, you know, taking pride in a well-organized project and then achieving publication in a prestigious journal um, should make you feel happy, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's, 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 it's an accomplishment. And, and like kind of related to this, I've, I've seen at so many universities, I've seen um, teachers kind of put down the students. Mm. Like, you know, well, yeah, these days anybody can get into university and, and that kind of stuff. And like our job is to be there for the students who are there, whatever level they're coming in, and to do our best job to teach them and to help them. And um, it, for me, it's a cop-out to, to put down um, 
your students because because they're not the students you wish they were. Well, we're not all teaching at a Tokyo University or a Kyoto University, and um, and and from what I've heard, with no offense to anybody who teaches at those um, teachers at those super prestigious universities don't necessarily have to be particularly good teachers because the students are just so naturally bright. But those of us who are at other universities, those of us who are at all universities, great ones and lower level ones, have got to work with the students that, we're, that we have and look at what we can do for them to succeed. Well, it doesn't um, preclude them from being interested and engaged and motivated students it's just that they're not perhaps interested and motivated in the things that they were being tested on you can enthuse them and can engage them by being uh the teacher that you kind of always wanted to have yourself absolutely absolutely and and um just helping them grow i mean helping them you know the whole gardening metaphor for teaching and and we're growing our students' skills were growing their abilities. Well, I think that's a, an excellent place to finish uh, our interview today. We've covered a lot of interesting topics, and thank you very much for your time, Mark. Okay, thank you for this opportunity. Can I just, um, if sure. people are interested in the book, um, uh, if they go to abax, A-B-A-X, dot C-O dot J-P, and uh, look under teachers' resources, and um, they can find out about it. They can find out how to get a copy. Um, and also, I'm very excited about this. We agree the the, the ebook version is going to be available very very soon, mm-hmm. and the publisher agreed that in um, less developed countries, it's going to be five bucks. Five dollars, which is about because I'm fortunate that I I go to places like Nepal and Pakistan and places where where you know teachers don't get paid much, right? And so I'm really excited that that uh, they'll be able to um, access things there. Also, not about the book, but if I could just plug this, I have a website that's E L T and Happiness. And the and is spelled out, A-N-D. And this is all one word, ELTandHappiness.com. And there are, I don't know, 40 or 50 activities and articles and things that you can download, and that's all free. And so if people want a sample, ELTandHappiness.com. We will, we will put that in the, uh, in the show notes as well so that uh, there will be a direct link there. So the, the book Wonderful. that we've been talking about that you can order a sample of and uh, experience for yourself um, is English Teaching and the Science of Happiness, Positive Psychology Communication Activities for Language Learning. Um, And if you want to uh, turn any of your friends on to uh, this this podcast or also on to Mark's work, um, then please pass along your recommendation. You can do it just person to person, or you can like and leave a message in iTunes or wherever you download your podcast from. You can connect with us at lostincitations at gmail.com. But of course, the best way is simply word of mouth, pass it on to somebody else and uh, let them experience happiness with Mark Helgeson. Okay, thanks so much, Chris. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time.
And thanks to all the people who listen. Oh, yes. And, and to you, too. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Mark. Okay. Take care. <laughs>